Hello and welcome to Somewhere to Believe in, a new podcast from the people who bring you Greenbelt Festival. I'm Paul and I'm the creative director of Greenbelt Festival. I'm one of your hosts for this podcast. Hello, I'm Catherine and I'm your other host for Somewhere to Believe in and the programme manager at Greenbelt. If you love very small talk and huge ideas, then this podcast is for you. So hi, Catherine. How are you doing? I'm good. We're back. We're back with episode five. Mm-hmm. Episode five of eight. That means that we're more than halfway through. I was never very good at maths, but it feels like we're more than halfway through. Yep, that's some good maths. Yeah, thanks. Thanks. That's why you do the budget. <laughs> There's a lot of reasons why I do the budget. <laughs> <laughs> So who have we got lined up today? Who are we going to be speaking to in today's podcast episode? Well, today we've got Abdul Rahman Malik, who is, I mean, how would you describe a man like Abdul Rahman? He is a thinker. He's a theologian. He's just an all-round interesting person. But that's coming up later on. So how are we doing at Greenbelt? What are we, um, what are we working on at the moment, Catherine? We're working on the festival, Paul. Not the real life festival, because obviously that has been cancelled. Oh, no. I know. Too soon. But we are working on a digital festival, which is, I think it's the best thing we can do, considering all the circumstances. But I'm actually really excited about it. Do you know what? I am too. You've won me round. Since you've come back off furlough and you've really energised this whole thinking around the digital festival, you know, as the weeks roll on now and we're getting quite close, I'm getting really excited too. So thank you, Catherine. Oh, you're welcome. So what sort of things have we got in store, just to remind people? Because we went on sale at the beginning of this week with passes for the weekend. But what sort of things can people expect? We're going to have lots of talks, live streamed, lots of panels, discussions, debates. We've got some lovely musical performances from artists all around the globe. That's the good thing about doing it digital, is that you can get people to do it from anywhere in the world. We've got a bit of comedy, we might have a bit of performance, and also we're creating a lot of just meet-up spaces where people can get together and chat because, as we talk about a lot, no one really cares about the programme at Greenbelt. It's all about the space. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. Why do we bother? (laughs) (laughs) We can't uh, emphasise enough. It, It really helps us plan the day better, get the experience right, if you book your passes nice and early because we're producing the stream on a dedicated portal and it just really helps us to know the numbers that we're working with. So get your passes as early as you can. That really helps us. Thank you. That really helps us because it's with the festival, we kind of know how many people we're expecting to have. So all of our budget and all of our money is kind of spent before all of those people have bought passes but we kind of know so it's cool we're we're never in too much trouble with this digital event i have no idea how many people are going to turn up it could be 500 it could be 5000 but yeah obviously it'd be great to know (laughs) it would it would and it's been really nice hasn't it especially for us too when we've been having our invitation conversations with people to be able to say oh no look this isn't for free we're not expecting you to do this for free there's a fee here we can pay you Our ability, because of the generosity of our Greenback audience, to offer genuine support and fees to artists, that's been a really good thing that we've been able to do as we lead up to this festival. 
Yeah, and we have to. Like, what would a world be like without artists? You know, we've talked about that a little bit in our podcast. And so, you know, when we're creating this digital event, it was really important to us that we did charge people. It's not a lot, but we did charge people a fee because we want to be able to pay our artists and we want to value the art that they're giving us. We don't want to be expecting people to do it for free. Here's my question to you, and it's a, a, you're not going to have the answer to it. Do you think that a lot of the treatment or oppression of women came because of a religious doctrine or idea? Yeah, for sure. Oh, okay. <laughs> I think most religions, in terms of the sacred texts that lie behind them, were written in times that were deeply deeply patriarchal and then what happens is the people who follow those religions imbue those religious texts with ultimate and literal meaning so they don't think oh actually times have changed we think differently now we know lots of different things now we've discovered x y and z since that text was written and they still go back to that text as if it is the once and be all for all time truth and framework for living and I think that's what gets us into a bit of a mess with things, including our own sort of like really, really unjust way of behaving around gender. So I've been watching one of the things I'm watching at the moment is Canadian Drag Race, which is a bit of a spin off of American Drag Race. Yeah. And there's a drag queen in there who is, I guess, First Nation Canadian. And they would describe themselves as non-binary. But First Nation Canadians, there's this idea of this two-spirited person. So somebody that has both the feminine and the masculine within themselves. And that really struck me because it's obviously an idea that has been around for years. But I guess in a modern Western Christian society, we kind of got rid of that idea of gender and we just went for that kind of two pronged approach but if you actually go back to those sacred texts where it would be the the bible the old testament the new testament the quran all of these ancient texts when you read them i don't know poetically or reflectively or critically or with imaginatively and you begin to scratch beneath the surface they are far from binary and there's often 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 characters in those books and in those sacred texts and characters and stories that are much much more fluid than you would imagine are they really yeah not a lot but but definitely yes i think we you know one of our guests over the next few weeks on this podcast is going to be ruth hunt and she has recently curated a book called the book of queer prophets and that features a muslim drag artist who writes really really eloquently in their chapter about the characters that that they encountered in their reading of the quran which gave them this sense of the fluidity of of gender identity <laughs> In 2001, obviously, we lived through the seismic shock of 9-11. And that really, really challenged the trustee board at the time. And what they decided was that as creatively and as imaginatively as we could, as a festival, we needed to reach out and form relationships with people of progressive belief and progressive faith within the Islamic community in the UK, because we needed to understand more. Because... What Greenbelt's good at understanding is what fundamentalism looks like and how damaging that can be. 
and it seemed to us that there was a rise of fundamentalist Islam that was proving very, very damaging and violent around the world. And in a way, we sort of related to that because for lots of us, we were trying to come out of a religious background which had at times in our own experience been very fundamentalist, very prescriptive, very restrictive, and sometimes, yes, violent. So ever since that day, ever since post 9-11, we have made a conscious effort as a festival to become friends with Muslim artists and thinkers, and Abdurrahman Malik is just one of those, and he's proved to be a wonderful friend. That was a very long spiel. Oh, but it ended nice. So I wasn't involved within the festival then because I was still in high school. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm going to go and have a lie down. <laughs> but I um, I remember in 2017 or 16, it was when America put in that Muslim travel ban. Yeah. And I remember Abdulrahman coming into the office and talking about how for the first time since moving to the UK, he was kind of scared. He was kind of scared for his family. And this was at a time when... I remember going to the shop across the road from our office and seeing a guy shout at the Muslim woman who was working at Tesco. He started just hurling racism at her. And there was lots of stories about people just feeling free to hurl racism at any Muslim person they were coming across. And in the newspaper at the time as well, they were really focusing on like, there's going to be a terrorist attack. It's probably going to be a festival. It's definitely going to be a festival. Look at all these festivals having to have armed security guards. I think we were even in a newspaper at the time saying that we had armed security guards. Yeah, yeah, we were. We didn't. And that was the year that we decided to really go a few steps ahead and have our first venue on site that celebrated Muslim art and culture. And to me, there's something that you need to do when people are facing oppression, which is not don't ignore it, but try and counteract that, try and counteract that feeling, trying to make people feel more welcome. There used to be a lovely Franciscan priest who came to Greenbelt quite a few times. His name is Richard Raw. He lives in the United States, out in the desert, in the New Mexico. And he always said this phrase that the best critique of what you think is bad is the practice of the better. And I think that's sort of a little bit like about what you're just saying. And that's why, yeah, as Greenbelt... Yeah, that's much better than what I just said. <laughs> no. Much quicker than what I just said. <laughs> so rather than just carp on and say, oh, isn't it bad? Oh, I disagree with that. Isn't it evil? You sort of almost don't say anything about it. You just do something that is different. You mm. do something that is radically the other way, that is inclusive, that is inviting, that is loving, that is supportive, that stands in solidarity with. And that's your practice. And that practice is the best way of saying how pissed off you are about division or injustice is to practice a different way of being. My only experience of something similar as a woman is whenever I am talked down to because of my gender or just kind of ignored because of my gender, and it happens sometimes, you know, you've experienced the difference that someone might write an email to me than to you, or sometimes when I write an email to somebody and they would just reply to you instead of replying to me. And then to have a man of that demographic stand up and put me at the front of something and fix that is the only way that I've been able to feel better about that. Yeah. Otherwise, I would just continue to be annoyed at every single man that I come across. (laughs) Because that kind of stuff stays with you, doesn't it? (laughs) 
it's a real delight for us to be able to get in deep with Abdurrahman today and have a great conversation with him because it feels like getting to know the Muslim communities in the UK and further afield now that we're in relationship and supported by the Amal project. It feels like that relationship has only enriched the festival in terms of the artistry and the ideas and the people that it's brought to us over the years. Thank you for joining us. Where, where are we speaking to you this morning? I'm in New Haven, Connecticut this, this, this morning, and I'm sitting in, in, in my kitchen looking out my window, and we sit on this kind of small little ravine between two, two streets, and, and I, I enjoy this morning time the most. We just came out of the month of Ramadan, which seems like a lifetime ago, but was only, was only about two months ago, and I think it was during the month of Ramadan that this became my kind of favorite place in the house because I'd kind of sit here at this table looking out the window and watch the sky change. How was Ramadan in, in lockdown? I mean, that must have been challenging, to say the least. It was it was such an unusual Ramadan for a number of reasons. Uh, one, you're right. I mean, lockdown just made sure that we were at home and together as a, as a family, so it's it's myself, my, my wife Farina, who's also a, a journalist and and um, now entrepreneur of, of 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 many stripes, and and our son Abdi, who's who's nine. And it was so it was the three of us during during kind of very much together during the month of Ramadan, and, and Ramadan is such an time usually of community you know it's about breaking the fast together it's about sharing food it's about going to communal prayers it's about creating opportunities for increased uh, service and and care um, and all of a sudden we were denied all of that uh, and didn't have an opportunity to experience Ramadan through that lens and I think for so many of us we were thinking what kind of Ramadan would it would it be but I found Ramadan this year to be incredibly powerful and also a time of, of of introspection in a way that it hasn't been in previous years. I think we were with ourselves a lot. We were with our own feelings, our own emotions. And I think ultimately we were sitting with our own spirit in a very different way. During the month of Ramadan, I, I kind of resolved to take over food preparation and, and, and cooking and, and kitchen duties. It happened a little bit before the beginning of, of Ramadan, but I was pre-gaming it because because I think for me that gave me a real sense of of something very tangible to do. You know, waking up in the morning and preparing breakfast, thinking about what we were going to serve during the day. Yeah, I found that just, just in the preparation of meals, there was a, a real blessing. Um, and, and it gave my Ramadan a kind of a kind of a rhythm. In Ramadan, I find that I eat less, but I enjoy my food more. There's a there's a kind of a visceral joy that food takes on during the month of Ramadan. And and, and and coffee actually is so central to my practice of Ramadan. Because when I wake up in the morning and I come into my kitchen at, at 2.30 or 3, 3 a.m. And I try to get up a good hour, hour and a half before, before everyone else does. Because I love that time of morning. There's a quietness. 
everyone is uh, everyone is asleep. It's still dark outside, and I go right for right right for my for my for my kettle, and I and I boil the water, and I grind the coffee, and I put it in my filter, and I and I just take time with it, and and I make my my first cup of coffee, and that's what's next to me as I as I prepare the prepare the rest of the meal, and there's a wonderful ritual around that. So that's fascinating hearing how coffee is part of your morning ritual. What we're going to do now is we're going to listen back to a little extract from a talk that you gave back in 2015 about the Mohammedan bean and the way that we have Islam to thank for coffee. I remember picking up an article that said that was titled Coffee, the Wine of Islam. And I thought to myself, this is interesting. And it told the story of of fatwas and Sufis. It told the story of empires and trade. It told the story of coffee houses and Turks' heads. And I thought to myself, this is one of those weird Muslim articles that one picks up from time to time that tries to make everything Islamic. Uh, Because, you know, maybe there's an inferiority complex or something. I thought, well, coffee, what does coffee have to do with Muslims? It has more to do with the Italians and their cappuccinos or Juan Valdez uh, and his and his Colombian donkey, which brings the coffee down from the uh, uh, from the mountains. But the more I began to investigate, and the more I began to kind of explore the origins of coffee, the more I realized that the article was truer than I ever would have thought. I was enthralled to read the following words. And these are the words of Sheikh Abdul Qadir al-Jaziri, a 16th century scholar and historian. And he wrote, Coffee is the common man's gold. And like gold, it brings to every man the feeling of luxury and nobility. Take time in your preparations of coffee, and God will be with you and bless you and bless your table. Where coffee is served, there is grace and there is splendor. There is friendship and there is happiness. What I learned was that coffee and Islam share a history that goes back over five and a half centuries. Now, for those of you historians amongst you and uh, the nitpicking bookish types, you, of course, are all thinking to yourself, hogwash, coffee started in Ethiopia, of course, and what is Malik on about? Indeed, the origins of coffee were in Ethiopia, and we know the famous legend of Kaldi the goat herder, whose goats uh, ate of the red berry and then jumped around like, 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 like jumping beans, manic. And he didn't, Kaldi didn't know in the ninth century what this was, but then he realized that they had eaten from this red bean, and this red bean, of course, was coffee. But if Ethiopia was where the origin of coffee was, then Yemen was the place where coffee found its soul. There's a lot of competing historical narratives on how coffee came to the Yemen. What we do know is that coffee started to be used by the mystics of the Yemen, the Sufis, members of spiritual orders who existed particularly in the Yemen and who in their rituals and their gatherings of of remembrance of God, of worship of God, particularly late at night, found that in imbibing and drinking coffee, they had sprightliness and vigor and energy to give added oomph to their devotions. Some people say it was a man by the name of Sheikh Ali ibn Umar al-Shadili, who's buried in the city of Mocha. <laughs> I kid you not. 
In fact, his grave is such an important site of pilgrimage that people from all over the Yemen come to the port city of Mocha to say a prayer to uh, Sheikh Ali ibn Omar Ashadali and to often drink coffee around his grave as a sign that he was the one who made coffee popular amongst the Sufi orders, the mystical orders of the Yemen. But there's another great story that I want to tell you about. And this relates to another great spiritual master named Ad-Dabahani. And it is said that in 1454, Ad-Dabahani went to Abyssinia, not far from the Yemen, just across the water. And there he found people using coffee. And though he knew nothing of its characteristics, after he he had returned to the port city of Aden. He fell ill and remembering coffee, he drank it and benefited by it. He found that amongst its properties was that it drove away fatigue and lethargy and brought to the body a certain sprightliness and vigor. In consequence, he and the other Sufis in Aden began using the beverage. Then the whole of the people did so. The learned people and the common people followed his example and drank it. So in a way, the whole idea of brewing coffee, of drinking coffee, was initially the brewing of coffee was the coffee fruit, what we call the gishr, uh, or some people know as the kaskara. It's the, it's, the, it's the red bean that surrounds the coffee bean that was initially used and actually was boiled and made into kind of a tea-like beverage, and that was called gahwa al-gishr in Arabic. Uh, but then later on, they decided to start roasting the beans. And in roasting the beans, they found that flavor came out. And then they ground the beans, and then they boiled the beans. And they found that this beautiful elixir, um, this beautiful elixir came out. The amazing thing, of course, was that while coffee began in the Yemen as a social beverage, people outside of those Sufi orders began to see hmm, what's this thing that everyone's drinking? And so it became commonplace amongst people who are not part of the mystical orders to start to drink coffee. And soon, across the Yemen, coffee drinking became the norm. It became an act of piety and religiosity. So it wasn't long, because the Yemenis are traders, that coffee began its journey around the world. First, it went to the, it went to the Arabian deserts, the city of Mecca, which is a great city, holy city of Islam, the birthplace of the Prophet Muhammad. And there in the precincts of the Holy Mosque around the Kaaba, the symbolic house of God, people from the Yemen began drinking coffee and sharing it. Because of course a place of pilgrimage was a place of pilgrimage for everyone. So the Yemenis would look over at the Egyptians and say, Egyptians, try some of this. And then look over at the Syrians and say, try some of this. And soon, as people came to Mecca, they took stories and sometimes beans back to their home, homelands. And soon, from Mecca in the early 1500s to Cairo in the early 1500s, we see the emergence of the drinking of coffee. Now, was this without controversy? Of course not. Everything has controversy. And every good story has a fatwa. Salman Rushdie, you got nothing on this. <laughs> So in 1511, coffee is being drunk in the holy precincts of, uh, of Mecca, around the sacred mosque. And so one night, the potentate, the local Mamluk um, the ruler of Mecca is walking after the evening prayers and, you know, observing his city as it uh, unwinds. And he sees a group of men. They're saying prayers to each other, and he can smell this, this very intoxicating beverage, and the smell of it, and the cooking of it, and he becomes very worried. 
and he wants to know what this is because he's never been exposed to coffee before. And so this man, whose name was Khair Bey, takes it back to his group of scholars and advisors and says, I've smelt this beverage and I'm worried about it. People are gathering to drink it. Is it something like alcohol? Is it something prohibited? So he calls a great council of scholars. He calls the Persian physicians of the court and they test coffee and they drink it and they deem it to be haram, prohibited. And so the first fatwa against coffee is passed. <laughs> coffee shall no more be drunk in the holy precincts of Mecca. Of course, the fatwa is written in proper script and then sent to Cairo, at that time the seat of Mamluk power. Well, by the time it gets to Cairo and the Sultan sees it, he says hogwash, rips up the fatwa because before Khair Bey even knew it, coffee had already reached Cairo and had become a great and popular beverage in Cairo. And in fact, Khair Bey's story ends very badly. He's... Uh, drawn and quartered when he gets back to Cairo for all kinds of other things that he was that, that he did. The two physicians are killed by highway robbers and the scholar who gave the fatwa dies a horrible death. This for the people of religion is a sign of coffee's spiritual value. <laughs> you mess with coffee, God messes with you. I love that story and there's a really lovely relationship with spirituality and with food that I feel is one that I haven't had in my life and it is, gets kind of lost in the modern world. And you know, in, in the Islamic tradition, there's so many interesting stories about food and the way in which food is used to draw closer to God and uh, to, to give um, solace and joy. And the Sufis in particular tell us about prayers that we should say as we're cooking to invoke blessing in the very processes of the cooking as you're, as you're Folding your bread or as you're layering your curry with each layer, there's there's sort of invocation and blessings that that one can give. And I always love that because it, it, it as, as, as we all know, there are certain foods which are made by people we love that taste different um, and they'll always taste different. They'll always taste better. And, and maybe part of that is skill, but I think most of that is love. Uh, most of that is care. Most of that is is joy and affection that's kind of that's kind of put right into the dish that's a really lovely idea and i think that it's true and there's a, there's a lot of i've heard that there's a lot of health benefits to even just taking that moment before you start to eat food to pray to be really aware of what you're doing to be really thankful about what you're doing Catherine, i i i, I can't agree with you more you know when we break our fast there's that moment just before we take that first sip of water or we take uh, that first bite out of the uh, out of the date where we pause and there's a, there's an invocation and, and, and a blessing that is very specific to the breaking of the fast and that you ask for the acceptance of the fast and you ask for a blessing on the food and you ask for a blessing for the company of those with whom you are breaking your fast with. And that first sip of water after... 18 hours, you know, during these summer months, it has a sweetness to it that is, uh, that's, un that's unmatched. Um, we are going through really difficult times and people are going through really difficult times. And I think this Ramadan, we became aware of our privilege in a way that I think before this pandemic period, I had probably only paid lip service to. I mean, I can talk woke as good as anyone else. 
but they, but this time has forced us into really understanding where we are in the societies and the communities that 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 we live in. And I think for those of us who enjoy incredible privilege, I think as spiritual people, as people who who are connected to, uh, I hope, to morals, ethics, the struggle for mercy, compassion, and justice in the world, this pandemic has been a wake up call. The divisions between between uh, of, of wealth, the the disparities of healthcare, the disparities of of of, of, of racism and particularly anti black racism have all been shown up in this period starkly. We are coming to terms with the way that the statistics are showing us that certain communities are much more ravaged and affected by the pandemic than others and particularly BAME communities here in the UK and certainly BAME key workers have been um, very you know prevalent in in the statistics of people who've been severely ill and and died and you mentioned that you know typically Ramadan would be such a time of community of gathering of being together and yet this pandemic obviously it's different in the states to here is forcing us apart and I wondered, what what are your thoughts um, around having to be kept apart for the good of all, but and yet you know the toll that that takes as well. I was rereading a study out of Harvard the other day, and it, it's it's one that I'm sure you and and the Greenbelt family is is familiar with this this l- longitudinal study of 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 human happiness. And and what are the things that make us happy and healthy? And what are the things that make us sick? And what are the things that break us? And, you know, this longitudinal study, which, which started, you know, over 75 years ago and has had thousands of individuals uh, tracked throughout the course of their lives, comes to really one conclusion that... Our ability to make human con- meaningful human connections is the most important indicator of health, is the most important indicator of happiness, is the most important indicator of living a fulfilled and even long life. And so in <laughs> the, the, the conclusion is loneliness is a, a disease which leads not only to unhappiness and mental illness, but but to but to physical illness and so I think the question about loneliness and connection is so vital right now. You know, I've never appreciated or been thankful for technology as much as I have in these last four months. I mean, the ability to to to, to do this with both of you to to to, to open my laptop and to, and to to plug in my mic and my headphones and and here we are across oceans talking to each other, connecting, catching up, discussing the world. That's remarkable, and particularly in Muslim communities, is we can't gather for Friday prayers, so there's hundreds of folks who are doing Friday sermons online or Friday reflections. One of our friends decided that every second night of Ramadan, they were going to host an online fast breaking and they would just turn on their computer, send out a Zoom link and say, whoever wants to come on, come on. And people would just come on and break fast together and, and talk about and talk about the day. And sometimes there would be robust conversations, but often it would be it would be quiet. And we got used to that. We got used to just being quiet with one another because it was nice to be seen. 
So I've actually, I've, I was just realising when you were talking then, and you were talking about um, these Zoom conversations that were happening and these Zoom meetups, and I was thinking I would love to have gone to one of those Zoom meetups because I actually have never been to a mosque. I've never been inside a mosque, and I don't know what happens during when you go there for Friday prayers. Could you could you explain a little bit about what happened? So usually, when one would go for Friday prayers, you'd you'd, you'd go into the mosque, you'd take your place in the in, in the mosque, and there would be the call to prayer would be given. There would be a short opportunity for individuals to to pray on their own. And when I say pray, the the, the physical cycles of, of of ritual prayer that that is is common to, to to all Muslims, which is around standing and bowing and prostrating and sitting. Once everyone has completed their individual prayers, the call to prayer goes again. At that, that point, the person who is giving the sermon um, uh, will 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 address the congregation and the sermon usually lasts between 15 minutes and and, and and 30 minutes in some communities where the air where giving the sermon in the Arabic language is honored there would have been a a pre-sermon talk usually in, in English or the vernacular of the people in the mosque and then the sermon itself would be given in Arabic but most of our mosques now give give the sermons in, in the language that is common to everyone so usually English and then after the sermon is given, everyone stands up, and there's there's two cycles of of congregational prayer that are that are said together. And and the unique thing about Friday prayers is usually the afternoon prayer, even when done congregationally, the the the, the actual stuff of, of of the prayer itself is said silently and individually. But during the Friday prayers, it's it's said communally. So the Imam will recite passages from the from the Quran and, and actively lead the congregation uh, through these cycles of prayer. And at the at the conclusion of the ritual prayer itself there'll be a communal uh, supplication uh, that's made and then of course a part of the joy of the Friday prayer is what happens afterwards it's time to meet and greet and to spread salam and, and peace and to catch up with your friends and if you're at a at a wonderful mosque like the East London Mosque which was close to where we lived in, in Whitechapel you'd, 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 you'd spill over to Fieldgate Street and find the nearest kebab shop for a catch up with your with uh, with, with your friends. One interesting point, because most of our in most of our mosques, and I know our friends from the Christian tradition understand this 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 tension, is that in most of our mosques the Friday sermon itself is delivered by a man, is delivered by the imam of the mosque or some kind of guest khatib or or, or, or a guest sermon uh, giver. What has been really interesting during this pandemic lockdown period is that because we are not bounded by these these sort of traditional rules of what happens within a mosque setting, the Friday sermons and, and that are going online and these Friday reflections and these Friday gatherings have been increasingly led by women and have been in increasingly diverse. And so, in fact, it's been it's been quite a wonderful thing to see. And and that's been that's been really important. <laughs> that has been really, really important. And it's been, been important to see in, way, in ways in which this moment and these technologies have allowed us to expand the scope, uh, which otherwise would have been a kind of long, drawn-out theological or uh, discussion over sacred law or jurisprudence. 
Now, circumstance has allowed us this opportunity to really increase the diversity of voices in spaces where that was not uh, you know that might not have been possible before and that's that's a terribly good thing and so that's really really interesting to hear so that's another example of how these strange times have almost forced a new pattern which we can only hope might help us as we go as we go forward it might be a, a sign of hope out of a, a very difficult time a, another thing that you mentioned earlier on abdurrahman was the way that um the Black Lives Matter movement has resurged um, during this time from the States and then ar- around the world again. And we've been reflecting with some of our guests that this time this call for racial justice feels somehow different, feels even more urgent, feels as if there might be a tipping point that could be reached. And I know that, you know, you're uh, one of your huge all-time heroes and inspirations is Malcolm X. And I wondered, you know, living as a Muslim as you do in the States and um, being there in that context, what has all that felt like? What does that look like to you? The resurgent coalitions that are organizing against anti-black racism in the wake of the murder of Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, and, and, and so many others could only, I believe, have happened in this pandemic moment. There was a certain energy, latent energy that was there. Communities were beleaguered. People were deeply aware, again, of their privilege and lack of it. They knew that more black and brown bodies were dying in this pandemic. They knew that that, um, access to health care was not equal. They knew that police uh, and law enforcement were imposing social distancing differently in black and brown communities than they were in majority white communities. There is deep racial segregation, even in a place like New Haven, which has Yale University and and, and is considered a, a really liberal uh, town and, and is home to, to, to one of the world's great centers of ideas. This is a town that's racially segregated, that's economically segregated and we witness that segregation on a daily basis so so when the murder of george floyd was broadcast it wasn't the, it, it wasn't the realization that this was just happening now it was the realization that it could so brazenly happen and be videotaped and be uploaded and that this situation was replicating itself in a thousand ways in a thousand different communities we're part of a process which stretches its 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 pernicious hand right back to the beginning of chattel slavery. And that leads us back to our British Isles. And that leads us back to our, our histories. We are fully engaged in, 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 these, in these histories. And I think at this pandemic moment where tension was already rising and was present, and, and I, I, it just burst open. And and I think that there was a feeling that what do we have to lose now? <laughs> What do we have to lose? It's time that not only to take to the streets, but it's time to demand. This was a, also a profound moment, I think, in Muslim communities about thinking about anti-black racism. I, I don't think in my life I have seen um, 
the kind of reckoning that I have in the last few weeks. And that's, that's not, I don't say that in celebration. I say that in, with shame and humility. This has been a time of reckoning. I have to say it. And it's been a very uncomfortable time. And there's been a lot of uncomfortable conversations. We've taken for granted that we we believe in in in, in racial ju- uh, racial justice, but but I know that there were the pioneers who worked hard to even get us to this point, who we have forgotten and whose work has been forgotten. And this is the time to remember them. And so, for many ways, for me, Malcolm uh, in my own life, Malcolm X was was a kind of a nexus, was a doorway to understanding what that black Muslim experience was how blackness and and Islam in America are so closely tied given that 20, 30, maybe more percent of those who arrived in chains to the Americas were people of people of Muslim faith. How 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 people maintain their faith and their their tradition sometimes for generations, despite being forcibly converted to another faith. Besides the the violence of of, of chattel slavery, these are these are not just inspirational stories, but they are the bedrock of our religion in this in this part of the world. They, that is that is the history if if we can't connect to that there's no islam in america i think that there's some relation um for me about people being given the time to really think and engage because i think that's why the black lives matter movement has gained such attention and such traction over the pandemic as well is that people have a lot of people have stopped their everyday lives and their everyday busyness and there's something really interesting to me that when people have time to stop and think and learn then generally people are quite empathetic and good and want to try and make change there's something that happens there when people are just given time to be and and when 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 have we found that that time and and, and it's it's interesting cuz cuz at this moment we have certain choices that that some of us can make with our time and and to know that people are choosing to read and become educated and engage engage with this is, these issues is 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 really encouraging um but but i think also this time is it gives us time for for introspection and 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 for reckoning and to think about our organizations and our institutions, even the best of us, even the most progressive of us, to think about what we could be doing better. How can we get better? And and I know that that for 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 you at Greenbelt and this is this is a constant question. How do we make Greenbelt better? How do we make it more inclusive? How do we make this space a more welcoming space? How do we stay true to our principles? And have the most generous and compassionate and 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 merciful hearts and environment to to facilitate the most difficult conver- conversations and 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 I think those questions are now being asked by so by so many others, but also are there things that we can do? to get to where we want to go. And I think that's also a big question, isn't it? Where do we want to go? What are we building towards? I've always appreciated at Greenbelt the, the, um, 
the themes every year because I think I, I love the theme. The theme becomes a bit of a north star, doesn't it? <laughs> of thinking about what the space is and what the gathering is and what the what the festival what the festival is. And I think it's important every year to go through that process, isn't it? Of of defining what the what, what the north star is. And I think I, I have to think about that. I have to think about like you know in this limited time we have and in a time which. I mean, so many of us have felt, but I'll I'll own it. I have felt, I have never felt death closer. It's all around us. I have never felt it. Not in a morbid way, not in a not in a scary way, but in an absolutely just acknowledgement way. I have I have I have in my life not felt a time when when death was closer than it is now. Like it's just there. We have parents who are who are heavily immunely immune immunocompromised. Um, you know, I know what a COVID infection could do. Death is really close. Well, when death is close, there there's urgency. This is an urgent time. So 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 with the time that that God has given me, that God has given us. What are we going to do? And and I think when you look at it in that way, we can then take risks <laughs> because life is short. Life is short. It's time for risks. You know, you never know when 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 that end is going to come. May it be a may it be a blessed uh, end, and may we have may we have blessed lives before then. But it, to me, it's kind of like, dude, get it together. What can you do? What can you do now? Because you think you have time, but you don't have time. What can I do that is bolder? And and what are we aiming towards? And if we're aiming for the beloved community that Dr. King spoke about, if we're aiming for a world where where mercy and compassion and and and, and justice are the operating emblematic principles of our societies, our families, our organizations, our human interactions, I, I don't think we're asking for anything less than that. What am I gonna say to God? I gave you time, I gave you life. I gave you intelligence. I gave you privilege. How did you use it? I gave you the ability to communicate and organize and to build. How did you use it? I gave you facilities that I didn't give my uh, uh, my other creation because they, they have different journeys and paths. How did you use yours? That's a serious question because whatever faith is, it has to be about service and responsibility. Wow, if we were in a a southern baptist church i'd be standing up and saying preach preach <laughs> and it's it's always just wonderful talking with you we've sort of reached the end of our time but i wanted to on the podcast i wanted people to realize what a friend you are to the festival and have been for so long ever since you first came you and your family and um not only you you've brought us other people um and you've made us feel much more closely connected to muslim communities within the uk and in more latter years with the work with amal from around the world too and it's been we wanted to say a huge thank you to you for that i remember being at a conference in birmingham once where you stood up and you described greenbelt as the best muslim festival that there was and uh, uh, i've never forgotten that i'll never forget it and i i just i love the generosity of spirit that you that you give to us and you bring to us whenever you you speak 
I love Greenbelt, uh, and I love, and I love, and I love, I love you guys, and I love this space, and and I have made so many friendships that are enduring. Greenbelt has been an important part of my in my spiritual life um, in the in the fourteen years that that I was uh, you know living permanently in the in the United Kingdom, and coming to Greenbelt uh, every year was uh, you know really a highlight for Farina and I, and then after we had our son to bring Abdi into that space and to see him joyful in that space and connecting in that space and enjoying the music and the people and the food and the atmosphere and meeting aunties and uh, uncles that he didn't know, but then looking forward to seeing them again the year after. All of that has meant uh, has meant a lot to, to us. So, so, so thank you. And over the last few years, Paul Elson and Catherine, I'll say that it has been such a pleasure to watch so many people who I love, creatives, artists, thinkers from uh, the Muslim communities in the UK and, and and around the world come to the space. And I, and I always just kind of sit back because I know what's going to happen. They're going to arrive. They're going to speak. They're going to stay. And by the time it comes to leaving, they're not going to want to leave. And invariably, they will turn to me and, say, and they'll say, AR, you, you, you told us that this was going to be a wonderful experience experience we didn't understand what an incredible experience it would be until we got here i hope i can come back next year i've never had anyone not say that <laughs> when they when they come to greenbelt and that makes me proud it, it really gives me a sense of pride wow thank you thank you and when we come to cut this and get ready to go live i'll tell you what i'd love to be able to use that instagram picture that you posted of you and your beard <laughs> sure no problem because <laughs> that your your beard is look is you're really rocking that beard right now <laughs> oh paul it's it's entirely because beard trims are are, are cancelled <laughs> in the state of connecticut you just can't get one and so the last time i got it was in february in berlin and and it's just continue to grow and 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 i'm i'm it's just it just it's just it now truly has a has a life of its own i i i i man bun my hair my i've become a hipster (laughs) i've I've become a i've just i have embraced hipsterism oh i love 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 chatting to abdurrahman his voice is just so feels sort of so soothing and wise. But what about that quote uh, from his talk about the Mahamadan bean that we used where he ends, you know, you mess with coffee, God messes with you. That's got to be on a mug. We've got to sell that on a mug. That's got to be part of our merch. <laughs> oh, that would be so good, wouldn't it? Yeah. I think I think we might have missed the boat on that for this year. No. We've already, yeah. <laughs> but we should. We shouldn't forget that. That needs to be in the G-Store when we come back in 2021, for sure. Mm-hmm. We have got a merchandise range for this year, Wild at Home Out, and it's available now via our website. There's a nice little selection of tees and hoodies, including some classic designs and ones for this year as well. Yeah, I've been bothering Derek today because he's the one that designs them all. I've been bothering Derek about making me a T-shirt that I really like the design of. So he's put one up there that he's going to sell. And he's called it the Catherine T-shirt because <laughs> I've just bothered him so much. <laughs> <laughs> just for you. I loved hearing about um, the sort of the ritual nature of Abdurrahman's life, particularly in Ramadan, that getting up early in the morning and doing things in a certain order 
and as a form of a habit in that early part of the day. Do, do you have any morning rituals or rituals that form a part of your day, Catherine? I stumble out of bed with half eyes open and I need to always remind myself not to make any decisions until I've had my cup of coffee. Because <laughs> yeah. otherwise I'll just end up like just walking around in a circle going, I should do this, what should I do, what should I do, should I do this? No, just have coffee and you'll figure it out. <laughs> How about you? Do you have any rituals? I don't want to make excuses, but we've been trying to build a house and that's really cut across a lot of being able to have a standard day or a pattern to the day because there's always been very silly, bonkers things to be doing. Are you a, are you a morning person or an evening person, Catherine? I think I'm both a morning person and an evening person. What? But I'm not like a middle of the day person. <laughs> okay, yeah. <laughs> so not the bit where I have to work. <laughs> So would you be at benefit from, I don't know, living in the Mediterranean and having a siesta? Yeah, I think I'd definitely love to live in the Mediterranean for a lot of different reasons. I like olives. I like wine. We did that course, didn't we, the other day, Catherine, as a staff team to try and come together and think about our own well-being and our mental health. And we all got reminded, didn't we, of how important sleep is. Yeah, how important sleep is and also how important food is. It's weird, isn't it, that through Abdurrahman's stories and Ramadan and a lot of his practices as a Muslim, that interconnection between sleep and fasting and food and early and late those rhythms that they seem to be very important don't they as part of his practice and the more i learn things the more i realize that a lot of these religious practices haven't just come from somebody just going oh this sounds like a good idea they're stories they're stories of how people have learned to be better feel better so that idea of praying before a meal that mindfulness before a meal there are health benefits to just taking that moment to address the fact you're going to be digesting food and being more considerate over the food that you're making, taking more time with it, eating better food. That all has great benefits. And fasting apparently is supposed to have a really good health benefit. I like the way that Abdurrahman said that in Ramadan he actually eats less, um, but he enjoys what he eats more. I think I'd like to get to that stage. <laughs> What about technology? He seemed really, really thankful for the way that technology, particularly, of course, uh, digital and online, the internet, have really helped him and his family and his community stay connected across this pandemic period. He seemed really positive and thankful for that. How, how about you? How do you feel about technology? Is it something that's a good thing for you in your life, Catherine, or a mixed blessing? I think it's a mixed blessing. I mean, definitely over this pandemic, it's allowed us as a staff team to kind of keep working and keep being creative. And I've had a lot of fun with friends doing quizzes and DJ sets at night and stuff. And that's been great because I live by myself. So that was pretty much my only communication with anybody else over the pandemic. So that's been really lovely. But it's also made me think a lot more about technology's role in my life especially on furlough when I didn't have to spend, you know, nine to five each weekday looking at a screen, I started to feel a lot better. And trying to really reduce my screen time made me feel better. I don't think I'd have internet on Greenbelt Island. Not on your Greenbelt Island. No. I mean, that's the thing is, you know, if you had to start over, 
what would you keep? What would you have? They're interesting questions. Oh, well, yeah. It, I mean, that's a great thing that people can tweet us about that. If you were going to start over on this Greenbelt Island, what would you keep and what would you get rid of? And the ways you can let us know, Catherine, do you know the Twitter handles and all that sort of stuff? I'll give it a go. So you can reach us on Twitter. We're at Greenbelt. Boom. Got that one right? You did. We're on Facebook, Greenbelt Festival. We're also on Instagram, probably at Greenbelt Festival. That's right, yeah. And you can also get in touch with us. We've got a dedicated email address, which is stbi at greenbelt.org.uk. You know what? I am not a coffee drinker. I have tried to drink coffee, but hearing Abdurrahman talk again, I'm thinking, you know, do you think I should give it a go? Do you think I should try and learn to like coffee? Yeah. And I think if you're going to give it a go, you need to give it a go properly. I think you need to get like one of those Italian (laughs) espresso makers that you put on the top of your stove. And uh, I think you need to be really careful about the coffee that you're going to pick. And I think you need to get the right little nice cup and yeah, give it a crack. I just don't like the taste of it. I love the smell of it. I really, really love the smell of it. And I love being in and around that intoxicating, you know, a really beautifully, freshly ground brewed coffee mix. I, I love it. But I, the taste of it, I've never been able to get onto it. But someone told me once that, I think you're hinting, Catherine, you have to get, really do it properly. You have, to, you have to give it a go and you have to persevere. And I think you have to drink coffee, is it 13 times? If you don't like it, if you drink it 13 times, there's a figure. I'm plucking 13 out of the air. If you really do it that number of times, you you can educate your palate to actually enjoy it. I think that's olives. It was everything. <laughs> it's probably everything. <laughs> I tell you what, your mornings are going to be transformed. Yeah, because I, I find that really interesting that, you know, these Sufi mystics in the Yemen and, you know, you think that they're the, you know, the wild holy men and they have this like absolute conduit between them and God, which is really close and which none of the rest of us can access. But really, all it's sort of down to coffee. <laughs> If we all drink enough coffee, we can all get close to God. I really like uh, when Abdul Rahman was talking about the fact that when, because coffee was so new, suddenly lots of people were like, should this be banned? Is this like alcohol? What is this? What's our response to it? And, and that's, you know, they tried to ban it. They tried to ban this coffee because it was making people, you know, gather and commune. (laughs) And that is such a classic response from a religious community as well is, is this bad? (laughs) What should we do? (laughs) Should there be a new rule? (laughs) Yeah, we hope that you've really enjoyed this episode as much as as we have. And and talking to Abdurrahman, we could talk to him all day and all night, especially with a few cups of coffee inside us. But um, all good things come to an end. And we're beginning to think towards next week's episode when we'll be talking to Ruth Hunt, who was for a long time the CEO of Stonewall and is a fantastically interesting person. We really enjoyed the conversation with her, didn't we, Catherine? Yeah, so intelligent, just so calm, so lovely. I learned loads from her, especially about the way that she approached her activism and her campaigning. I found that very interesting. Yeah, it's really, really good. I really recommend it. I mean... We've got to be honest, Catherine and I are having just, you know, an incredible summer talking to these amazing people. It's a real pleasure and a privilege, and we hope that you're enjoying it too. So, yeah, don't forget to let us know what you're thinking. And our thanks go to Abdurrahman for having such a wonderful conversation with us as part of this podcast episode. (laughs) 
thank you to Daisy Ware Jarrett for producing us and making this all happen. And thanks to Paul Truman on our staff team as well. We'd also like to say a big thank you to Lee Baines of Lee Baines III and the Glory Fires for letting us use his amazing track, I Can Change, for the theme tune on our podcasts. And also to Kat and Josh on our Recorded Talks volunteer team for making us sound good by editing us so well. Thank you.